0: We want to return this morning to our study of the letter of Philippians, Paul's epistle to his dear friends at Philippi. We find ourselves again in the third chapter of that great letter, Philippians chapter 3. And as we've said for the last number of weeks, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's great concern is to define and delineate the nature of a true Christian. What does it mean to be a true child of God? He's concerned to treat this topic as a result of a very practical situation that has arisen in the church of Philippi, and that is that there were some men who we know as Judaizers who were professing to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but who were teaching the Philippians that in order for Gentiles like them to be saved and to be counted righteous before God, they needed to not only believe in Jesus, but also to be circumcised. And observe the ceremonies and rituals of the law of Moses. The righteousness which is to be found in Christ through faith is not enough, they taught. Man must add to Christ's righteousness the merits of his law keeping. But because Paul knows that this doctrine undermines the grace of God that is proclaimed to us in the gospel, And because he knows that no righteousness that man can provide could ever satisfy the the holy standard of absolute perfection that God demands, he issues to the Philippians one of the most scathing warnings found anywhere in his writings, a warning driven by a deep passion for the purity of the gospel of grace. Speaking of the Judaizers, Paul says in verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the of the evil workers beware of those who call themselves the circumcision but who are nothing but mutilators of the flesh and not just mutilators of the flesh but mutilators of the souls of men as they teach them to put their trust in a false gospel that promises them heaven but takes them to hell And so over and against the Judaizers who are teaching that the true child of God not only believes in Jesus but also receives circumcision and observes the Mosaic law, over and against that Paul defines the nature of a true Christian in verse 3. He says that the true circumcision, the true people of God are those who worship Him not by animal sacrifice and ceremonial ritual but worship Him by the Spirit of God. And those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And in elaborating on that third characteristic of the true child of God, Paul answers the Judaizers' objection that his dismissal of having confidence in the flesh, well, that just stems from him not having anything to be confident in. That was their supposed accusation. And Paul says, no, verse 4, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more... If anyone could make a case for deriving their righteousness from the Mosaic law, it's me. So for the sake of argument, he temporarily adopts the Judaizers' practice of putting confidence in the flesh in order to demonstrate to the Philippians that if the Judaizers' teaching was true, Paul himself had much more grounds for confidence in the flesh than the Judaizers did. So in verses 5 and 6, we saw last time that he lists seven religious advantages that he had trusted in for righteousness before he met Christ. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day, and so he trusted in his ritualistic orthodoxy. He was of the bloodlines of the chosen people of Israel, not not merely a proselyte like many of the Judaizers were, and so he trusted in his birth. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin able to trace his descent to one of the most highly regarded tribes in Israel. And so he trusted in his high social standing. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born in Tarsus, but he was educated in Jerusalem. And his parents were sure to maintain their traditional Jewish customs over against the pagan influences of Greco-Roman culture. And so he trusted in his religious traditions. With respect to the law, he says he was a Pharisee a member of the strictest, most religiously fastidious sect of Judaism. And so he trusted in his religious devotion. A mark of honor and nobility in the Jewish culture was a zeal for God. The Judaizers, he says, well, they may have been zealous for making converts, but Paul says, as to zeal, I wasn't just a proselytizer, I was a persecutor of the church of God. I was so sincerely zealous for the purity of Judaism that I killed Christians because I saw them as a pollution and as a corruption of the law. And so he trusted in his religious sincerity for acceptance with God. And finally, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. No one observing my life could accuse me of violating any external commandment of the Old Testament law and the Pharisaic tradition and interpretation of that law. And so he trusted in his own self-righteousness. So Paul says he he listed out all of his fleshly advantages, all the privileges that he had inherited by birth, and all the attainments he had achieved by his own effort, and with respect to establishing his righteousness before God, he regarded them all as gains, as pluses, as written in black ink in the assets column in his spiritual ledger book. But then he says in verse 7, "'Whatever things were gains to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ.'" He says, everything that I had counted on, everything that I had trusted in for my righteousness, everything that I had counted on to admit me into the holy presence of God, when the Lord Jesus invaded my life on the road to Damascus and opened the eyes of my heart so that I could finally see, I regarded everything that I thought was to my advantage as loss. All of the fleshly advantages that He possessed and all the fleshly advantages that the Judaizers were teaching the Philippians to pursue... Paul says, when I met Jesus, I found out that they were absolutely worthless to merit acceptance before God. And not just worthless, but loss. As the glory of Christ in the light of His holiness shone across the pages of that ledger book, he saw that every fleshly advantage that he had written in the assets column had been moved to the liabilities column." All the black ink was now showing up as red ink. All of his gains now added up to one huge minus, one overwhelming liability, one colossal loss. And we used Paul's shipwreck in Acts 27 to illustrate this. The cargo on that ship contained food and supplies and other goods. And at one time, everybody on that ship considered that cargo to be gained. But when the ship was being tossed in the storm and the men faced the threat of sinking, they realized the cargo was weighing them down and they came to count the cargo not merely as worthless, but as loss, as positively harmful to their hopes of survival. And so they took it and they cast it overboard into the sea. And in the same way, Paul says that his fleshly advantages at one time looked valuable to him. They looked like gains to him. In his attempt to establish his own righteousness before God. But now he saw that depending on his own good works as any part of the ground of his salvation was positively harmful to his spiritual welfare. It's not just that his good works wouldn't take him to heaven, it's that trusting in his good works for righteousness would take him to hell. They would weigh down his ship. And they would drown him into the sea of damnation and judgment. And so he gladly chucked all of his self-righteousness overboard into the billowing waves. And he trusted in the righteousness of Christ alone for his acceptance before a holy God. And we learn from that text that that is what salvation is. That is what it means to be converted. It means to list out all the things that you used to put your confidence in to earn your acceptance before God. All the things that you counted on as gains, your inherited privileges, your natural talents, your obedience to God, your deeds of compassion, your educational and professional achievements, your church attendance and Bible reading and prayer time, all of them, you count all of them as one huge loss. Conversion means, faith means, Abandoning all trust and reliance upon yourself for your righteousness, that's repentance. And then turning to Christ and trusting in Him to provide that righteousness in your place, that is faith. So much more than simply believing certain facts about Jesus to be true and about his gospel to be true. Saving faith is trusting in Jesus to provide righteousness that you need to enter into the kingdom of God. And as Paul continues his spiritual autobiography, we find ourselves in the middle of what our pastor calls one of the most significant statements of the doctrine of salvation in Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we have here certainly one of the most eloquent statements of what it really means to be a Christian. So Paul goes on outlining his own personal experience as a lens through which we all should see our own. So let's read verses 7 to 11 together. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, through this personal testimony of God's own dealings with him, Paul teaches the people of God much about the nature of saving faith and about what it means to be engaged in a saving relationship with Christ. Commentator Moise Silva writes, Paul, no doubt, would have been the first to protest that the gospel he proclaimed is too rich to be reduced to a few sentences. But if such a feat could be accomplished, the passage before us would be it. And so, because of the great richness of this text, our focus this morning will be exclusively on mining out the treasures to be found in verse 8. And we'll save verses 9 through 11 for next time. But in just this single verse, we find five characteristics of genuine saving faith. Five characteristics of genuine saving faith. And in in this text, we have this conception of saving faith as being the Christians counting all things as loss, all things that he once trusted for salvation as loss, and then coming to trust in Jesus Christ for righteousness. That's what faith is according to this text. And the the five characteristics of faith that we observe in verse 8 aren't so much additions to that concept, aren't so much coming at it in a new way. Rather, it's asking us to conceive of this faith as counting everything as loss as like a diamond. So these five characteristics are part of this diamond and they would function as different facets of this gem that as you view it from different angles, you See the the beauty and the glory and the brilliance and the contribution to the overall picture that they make simply as you shift the focus. And so we're going to attempt to view that gem this morning, to behold these five facets of genuine saving faith, so that we might better understand what it means to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, we would cause our own experience to be informed and to be interpreted by the Word of God. And that first facet of saving faith, I'm calling the resilience, the resilience of saving faith. We've described Paul as coming to view trusting in his own inherited privileges and in his own religious achievements as loss for the sake of Christ, viewing them as as that heavy cargo on a sinking ship that would only drown him if he clung to them. And so in the light of the glory of Christ, he counts them as worthless. He happily chucked them overboard into the tumultuous sea. But now it's as if Paul anticipates someone coming to him and saying, Now, Paul, that was was certainly a traumatic, emotional experience that you had on the Damascus Road there. I mean, blazing light, voices from heaven, physical blindness. That would put anyone in an emotional state where they could make hasty decisions. And that was 30 solid years ago, Paul. And you had so much to lose. After all, if anyone had a reason to put confidence in the flesh, you far more. Paul, do you have any regrets? Do you have any second thoughts about throwing all of your righteousness overboard? Paul says, not at all. Not only have I counted all things, all my grounds for confidence before God as loss, in the past, but, verse 8, more than that, I do presently count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do presently count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. The phrase more than that was really an untranslatable string of five emphatic Greek particles. It's really a peculiar combination in the original language. And if you were to try to translate it literally, it would read, but indeed, therefore, at least even. Doesn't make much sense. It's as if Paul is searching for adequate language to intensify and to emphatically reinforce the statement he's just made in verse 7. And then he also shifts from the the past tense in verse 7 to the present tense in verse 8. Look at it again. Whatever things were gains to me, these things I have counted as loss at my conversion. But even more than that, 30 years later, I do now presently go on counting all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. It's as if he's saying, listen, no Judaizer is going to change my mind about this. And they, they shouldn't change your mind about it either, my dear Philippians. And so Paul's 30-year-old decision to chuck all of his self-righteousness overboard, that wasn't an impulsive, rash decision made in the heat of a passionate moment. It wasn't a decision where after the commotion died down, he began to question himself and regret it. To extend the metaphor, it's not as if after throwing his self-righteousness overboard while he was in the tumult of the storm and then coming to safety on a nearby island, it's not as if he was sitting there on the beach, Forlorn, gazing into the horizon, nostalgically mourning his lost treasure that now lays on the bottom of the ocean floor. 30 years later, in a calm and settled frame of mind, Paul tells us that his present evaluation of all his fleshly advantages is exactly the same as it was on the day of the Damascus Road. The deliberate considered judgment of his heart based on the careful weighing of the facts is that all his self-righteousness, his orthodoxy, his bloodline, his social standing, his traditions, his religion, his zeal, all of it is still one big loss. This is the resilience of saving faith. Genuine God-given faith is not an impulsive, emotionally induced, one-time decision that has no effect on a person's life after the passion of the moment is over. How many professing believers there are who point to a revival service or a Billy Graham crusade or a mountaintop experience while away at some sort of Christian camp or retreat where they, they made a decision for Jesus. How many people claim such things as the reason they believe that they're saved right now? One day, long ago, they had what they would have called a similar experience to the Apostle Paul, a, an encounter with Jesus that caused them to count all things as lost, so to speak, or quote unquote, for Christ's sake. But then you look at their lives 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, and you realize they've not gone on counting all things as lost for Jesus' sake. They've begun again to trust Jesus in their own righteousness, and to pursue their sin. And so they show that whatever experience or whatever faith they had wasn't marked by the resilience of genuine saving faith. Well, the second facet of genuine faith that we see in this passage is, number two, the rejection. The renunciation, better said, that genuine faith makes. The renunciation that genuine faith makes. And and we've spoken a lot about this already, that saving faith renounces all of our fleshly religious credentials as grounds for our our righteousness before God. But it's not only Paul's personal heritage and religious achievements that he listed in verses 5 and 6 that he counts as loss. He also broadens his scope in these verses. Compare again verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, "'But whatever things were gained to me,' those things I have counted as loss. And now verse 8 says, more than that, I count all things to be loss. You see, everything that might compete with Christ for Paul's allegiance, every conceivable rival to his total trust in Christ, he repudiates and he renounces it as if it was a liability. He doesn't even put his confidence in anything that he's attained by the grace of God since becoming a Christian. And he had a lot of things he could have begun to trust in. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he was the original frontier missionary. He traveled the entire Mediterranean world seeking to take the gospel of Christ as far as he possibly could take it. This man literally changed the world. And he was extraordinarily gifted. He was an excellent preacher, an excellent teacher, an engaging and a motivating leader. And let's not forget that he wrote half of the entire New Testament. And then when you add all that he endured and suffered for Christ's sake, you see pretty quickly that there would have been plenty of temptation for him to put his confidence in his own works that he's even attained by the grace of God since he's come to faith, to earn him favor with God. But you ask him, and he says, nope. Anything that I may have inherited by birth, anything that I may have achieved in the past, any good thing for Christ that I may have attained to by God's grace, and anything I might ever do in the future, even in the name of Christ, I renounce all of that. I don't for one second count on it for my righteousness, for my acceptance with God, because as soon as I do that, even those good things become nothing more than the heavy cargo that will sink my ship straight to the bottom of the ocean. I count it as loss and I throw it overboard. Still today. And you would think between verse seven and the first part of verse eight, you think Paul would be satisfied he's made his point, but he's not. He keeps right on repeating himself and not just repeating himself, but intensifying and escalating what he's saying. Look again at verse 8, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And here we behold our, our third facet, namely the reality, the reality that faith confronts, the reality that faith confronts. So far we've been speaking of the disposition of the mind and the heart that regards or esteems or counts certain privileges to be be lost, to be worth less than nothing to us. We've been saying that we must count all things to be lost. But Paul tells us here that this hasn't just been theoretical for him. This hasn't just been theory. It certainly has to do with the resolution of the mind and the disposition of his affections But here he's telling us that he has actually suffered the loss of all things. You say, what did he lose? What are these all things? Well, not only did he lose all fleshly grounds of confidence in himself and in his religious credentials to take him to heaven, he also lost everything in life that he would have enjoyed if he continued to trust in those things for righteousness. He lost everything in life that he would have continued to enjoy if he went on trusting in those things for righteousness. Don't forget the important and exalted position that the Apostle Paul enjoyed in his life in Judaism. He was an educated man. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 34, was a highly respected rabbi by all of the people in Jerusalem. Paul was at the top of his class in his religious and educational studies, the two of those things overlapping quite a bit. And he says in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. In fact, we learn that he was advancing so far that in Acts 7.58, even as a young man, Saul of Tarsus was supervising the stoning of Stephen. They were laying their coats aside at his feet which would indicate that he was in some way the ringleader. Later in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, Paul tells the crowd that he was a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. And so he and his family were among the religious elite and were therefore likely to have been very financially well off. Paul would have had a respected place in the religious community. He would have had a sure income, a comfortable living. He would have had property, and in a family inheritance, he would have had nothing but the best kind of company and that was suitable to complement a keen mind like his. But when he beheld the risen Christ on the Damascus Road and abandoned all confidence in himself and his religious performance, he wasn't only abandoning the religious soteriology of Judaism, he was abandoning all the privileges that he enjoyed as a respected member of Jewish society. We have every reason to believe that Paul was disowned by his family, that he was disinherited, that whatever property he did own was summarily confiscated, and rather than a, a comfortable lifestyle with an upper class income, he had to labor all of his life working with his hands as a tent maker. Imagine. Someone with a, the formidable intellect of the Apostle Paul and with the breadth and depth of education that he possessed. Imagine someone like him doing the kind of blue collar work that any man of below average intelligence could have done. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 4 gives us an idea of what Paul lost for his commitment to Christ. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verses 9 and 10, he says that he's a spectacle to the world. He's regarded as a fool, as weak, and without honor. And then in verse 11, he says, "'To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty "'and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated "'and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. "'When we are reviled, we bless. "'When we are persecuted, we endure.'" When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. That's where Paul came to, from this exalted position in Judaism, the scum of the earth. Paul says, I lost it all. And with the false doctrine of the Judaizers in their ears, The Philippians want to know, Paul, do you have any regrets? Do you wish that you could have it all back after all this time? And he says, oh, my dear Philippians, I count it all as garbage. Not only do I not wish to to have it back, I'm absolutely repulsed by it. When I think that a generous income a social respectability, a comfortable life, and even family blessings and ties could have come between me and my dear Lord Jesus. I'm absolutely sickened by all those things. and I count them as worth nothing more than refuse in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This, my friend, is the fourth facet. The fourth facet of saving faith that we see in this passage is the revulsion of faith the revulsion of faith. Saving faith not only renounces all the idols in which we place our trust and seek our satisfaction, it's repulsed by them. This word skubalon that the NAS translates as rubbish has always been a difficult word for the translators to agree upon. There are basically two categories of thought on this. There's linguistic evidence for both of them. There's evidence that bears witness to the word referring to excrement or manure. King James Version represents that view and translates the word as dung. But there's also linguistic evidence that testifies that the word referred to kitchen scraps left after a meal, to food that had rotted, to garbage. And most of the modern translations follow that view and refer to the word as rubbish or as uh, refuse or filth. And I lean toward this latter category of meaning, garbage or refuse, not because I think excrement is too strong a rendering. I don't think you could render this word too strongly, but I believe that the idea is refuse because the Greek word skubalon likely derives from this Greek phrase. And, and listen to it because I want to make this, this connection here. The Greek phrase ta tois kusi balamanon, and if you listen carefully, you can kind of see the, the similarity between kusi balamanon and skubalon. The kusi means dog, and K, it's got the K, it's got the U, it's got the S. In skubalon, just kind of turned around a little bit. And then the balamanon means to be thrown, and skubalan is the idea of thrown to the dogs, that which is thrown to the dogs. You'll remember that when we spoke about dogs not too long ago in the Greco-Roman culture, we said that they were a far cry from our view of them as man's best friends. In that society, dogs were scavengers who would roam the streets of the ancient world eating anything and everything that they could get their mangy mouths on. They would often be seen eating dead animals, and in some cases even dead humans if they could find them. And if they could find it, they would would eat even the garbage that was left over from a recent meal somewhere. Scubalon denoted refuse, that which was fit only to be thrown to the dogs. And this is what Paul thought of what the Judaizers esteemed so highly. All of Paul's inherited privileges in Judaism, all of his religious achievements as a Pharisee, and everything he was forced to give up as a result of abandoning the legalism of Judaism, when he compared it with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, he regarded it as abominable trash, fit only to be thrown to the dogs. And I wonder if this repetition of the word dogs brings your mind back to verse 2 where Paul warned the Philippians to beware of the dogs. Commentator J.B. Lightfoot writes, The Judaizers spoke of themselves as banqueters seated at the Father's table, and Gentile Christians as dogs, greedily snatching up the refuse meat which fell therefrom. Paul has reversed the image. The Judaizers he calls dogs in verse 2. The meats served to the sons of God are spiritual meats, Circumcision and all the trappings of the Jewish system which they valued so highly are the mere refuse of the feast. So Paul says, apart from Jesus Christ, I count every rival source of righteousness and every rival source of pleasure as refuse. And if the Judaizers who are troubling you regard highly these things, if they esteem these things highly, they only prove themselves to be the dogs that they themselves so despise and accuse you of being. It's a master stroke from the Apostle Paul, biting irony. We come finally then to the fifth facet of genuine saving faith that Paul speaks of in this message. Number five, that's the the reason, the reason for saving faith, the reason for this count everything as loss kind of faith. How can Paul speak so strongly and so resolutely about such things? Why does he count all things as lost? What is the cause for such a definitive negative evaluation of everything that he might put his confidence in? What can cause someone to behold all the earthly glory of self righteousness, of possessions, of money, of property, of reputation, of status, of comfort, of ease, and 10,000 other things and regard it as trash? There can only be one answer, and that is knowing Jesus Christ. He makes all the difference. Look with me again at verse 8. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Christ. This knowledge of Christ that Paul speaks about having here is overwhelmingly personal and relational. It is so far beyond merely knowing that certain truths about Jesus are true. It is that. But Paul is saying that it is so much more. I want you to listen to the way the commentators speak about this kind of knowledge. They say this kind of knowledge signifies living in a close relationship with somebody. Such a relationship as to cause what may be called communion personal acquaintance, to know experientially by personal involvement, personal relational knowledge, personal experience and intimate relationship. you getting the picture? This concept of of knowledge as intimate personal relationship, it's, it's building on the rich understanding of that concept from the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks of God's electing love that He set upon Israel that way so that in Amos 3, 2, God can say, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Of course, God's not saying Israel's the only nation He knew anything about. He's speaking of the intimate relationship He had with Israel through setting His love upon them. The term to know is even used as a, a metaphor for sexual union within marriage. as Like it says in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when Adam knew his wife, Eve and she conceived and bore Cain that's an illustration it's obviously not the same thing but it's an illustration of how intimate this personal relational knowledge of Christ is and of course in Ephesians 5 Paul teaches that the that the union that exists between Christ and his church is pictured by the intimacy of the union of husband and wife this mystery is great but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church and he's just been talking about husbands and wives And Jesus himself speaks of this tender personal relationship in John chapter 10, verse 14, 15, when he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Get this, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. You say, by what kind of knowledge does the believer know Christ? Answer, by the same kind of personal, intimate relationship relational knowledge that God the Father knows Jesus and Jesus knows God the Father. This is the experiential knowledge of relationship. This is that conscious communion that we have with Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit and through the means of the Word of God that makes us aware of the fact that we worship a real person and not just an invisible idea that makes us feel that because it's true, That Jesus is our friend, our comforter, our brother, our intercessor, our advocate. The kind of understanding and communion that convinces us that that we, we more greatly love and admire and imitate the person of Jesus Christ and not the idea of a character in a book this is so much more than knowing the facts of Jesus' person, that He was God, that He was man, that He was virgin-born, sinless, died on a cross to pay the penalty for sins and rose again. You can know all of that, but that's not the knowledge that, Jesus, that Paul says is the saving relationship with Christ. Can I put it simply? You recognize that there's a difference between the people that you know about and the people that you know personally. And Paul says the true believer knows Jesus personally personally. And he says that that personal experiential knowledge of Christ, that is what makes him able to count all things as loss. He says knowing Jesus is of surpassing value, of incomparable worth, of matchless worth. If you were to have the value of knowing Christ on a balanced scale, and you were to put everything else that Paul has spoken about in this text on the other side of that balance, the self-righteousness, the religious prestige, the financial security, the comfortable life, the highly regarded profession, all of that in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, all of it is just garbage. And so Paul says that he regards all of the pleasures of the world as refuse so that, in order that, with the purpose that, I count those things to be refuse, so that I may gain Christ. And I won't gain him unless I regard those things that way. Paul had found the hidden treasure in the field, didn't he? He found the pearl of great price. Turning quickly to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, the Lord Jesus himself tells two parables that teach what conversion is. And for the sake of time, we'll just look at the first one. Jesus says, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The man whose heart has been awakened by the miracle of regeneration is like a man who stumbles upon this priceless buried treasure and because of the surpassing worth of the treasure that is Jesus Christ himself, the man goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy that field. He counts everything he owns as refuse in comparison to the surpassing value of gaining this treasure. Friends, is that what Jesus was to you at your conversion? Were you so thrilled by the surpassing greatness of his value that from the joy of discovering such a treasure, you gladly forsook all the pleasures of this world, counted them but dung, laid down your life, and laid hold of Jesus? And not only was that Jesus to you at your conversion, but is that Jesus to you now? Paul says, I presently, at this very hour, go on counting all things that would keep me from single-minded devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. I count them all as rubbish. Do you count the pleasures and the luxuries of this fallen world as nothing but refuse so that on that last day you will have truly proven to be His disciple and therefore gain Him? That is the nature of true and genuine saving faith, my friends. It is faith that receives Christ alone for righteousness, and it is faith that receives Christ alone for satisfaction and worship. And so we have sought to unfold these five lines of thought in Paul's display of what it means to trust Jesus by counting all other things as loss in comparison to knowing Him. What is the specific application that we can make of this text to our own lives? Well, as we've said, this is Paul's spiritual autobiography. As you look throughout this passage, it is unmistakable. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things." But as we've said, dear friends, this is not just Paul's biography. It is the biography of every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, can we exclaim these things alongside the Apostle Paul? Could we honestly pen these words? Are these words an accurate transcript of your spiritual condition? Have you experienced the resilience of faith? Can you insist that your conversion, your initial commitment to Jesus, was not just an impulsive, in the heat of the moment, whimsical, emotional decision that has no present effect on your heart or the way that you navigate your daily life? Can you exclaim with Paul that you not only have counted all things as loss, but do now at this present hour count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ? Have you experienced the proper renunciation that faith makes? Do you, with Paul, renounce even the good works wrought in you by the grace of God since your conversion as a ground of your righteousness before the holy God? It's a good and necessary thing to read your Bible and pray every day. It is a good and necessary thing for you to be a godly husband or wife or father or mother. It is a good and necessary thing for you to devote yourself to the duty of evangelism. It's a good thing for you to be a skilled teacher of the Word of God or a leader in the church or a Bible study shepherd. It's a good thing for you to lovingly open your home to show hospitality to the people of God. Dear friends, all of these things are good things, but when you take one thing One of those good things, apart from Jesus Christ alone upon which you set your confidence for righteousness before God, it's that one piece of cargo that will sink the ship of your soul into hell. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. Not, he will profit you some, just not as much more as he might have otherwise profited you. He will profit you nothing. Why? Because if salvation is by grace, as Paul says in Romans 11, it is no longer on the basis of works at all. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And in order to magnify the supremacy of God himself and the sufficiency of Christ alone, salvation most certainly is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And are we, dear brothers and sisters, are we prepared in our heart of hearts to face the reality that faith confronts? Are we prepared, if God should will it so, to suffer the loss of all things and count them, but refuse for the sake of gaining Christ? Are we prepared to show the world that Christ is more satisfying than all that this life can offer and all that death can take, that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Are we prepared to sell everything, so to speak, the everything that we have to purchase this priceless treasure, this pearl of great price, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? Are we, like Paul, prepared to count money as loss, to count possessions as loss to count reputation as loss to count comfort as loss to count an easy conflict-free life as loss to count even family as loss he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy than worthy of me to count all of that as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Are we willing to suffer the loss of all things so that we may gain Christ? Because that is what it means to be a true Christian. This is what saving faith is, friends. Listen, saving faith receives Christ not only as righteousness. Oh, it does that. But saving faith also receives Christ as treasure, as God, as alone the one that we worship. He is, is the treasure hidden in the field. He is the pearl of great price. And if there is something in your heart that you refuse to sell in order to gain Christ, then you can guarantee that just like the rich young ruler, you will go away sad when you meet Christ, destitute of a saving relationship with him. What do you regard in your heart as more worthy to be worshipped than Christ? I don't mean you get down on your knees and you bow down to a plastic or a golden statue. I mean, you erect idols in your heart. I mean, you pursue your sin. I mean, you refuse to forsake your sin. You You go to sin for pleasure and satisfaction when that pleasure and satisfaction is designed to be found only in Christ. Well, fourth, friends, do you know something of the proper revulsion that faith engenders toward all the idols of your heart? Do you regard all of the self-righteousness that you can achieve as well as all of the treasures that this life can offer you? Do you regard them all as refuse, as filth in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ? When you compare the pleasures of this world to Christ, is there a natural revulsion in your heart that says no? Do you regard these worldly pleasures as something fit only to be thrown to the dogs, to the ravenous wild dogs for them to come and pick at when they can't find anything, any other food, when they can't find roadkill? How loathsome does the man of God, does the child of God hate, find all these things outside of Christ? Do you have that proper revulsion or do you continue to erect and worship and serve these idols in your heart? Do you continue in your spiritual blindness that finds sin to be more pleasant, more glorious, more desirable than the Lord of glory himself? And finally, the one question that sums them all up. Do you know him? Do you know him? Not just the truths about him not just Bible teaching about Him, not just the theology of His incarnation or His salvation or His resurrection or His ascension? Do you know Him? Do you know Him like you know your spouse or your parents or your children? Is He yours? Do you have that deep intimate personal relationship with him through the reading of his word and through prayer through fellowship with his people and through abiding in his love by keeping his commandments some of you if you answer honestly have to answer no to that question to those questions Whatever may have been your past confession or your past experience, your faith has not had the resilience that continues to count all grounds of self-confidence as loss. You've not experienced the revulsion both of your sin and of your own righteousness which characterizes the kind of saving faith that counts both as loss. You don't count all worldly pleasures and comforts to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Christ doesn't look that valuable to you at all. He looks like a burdensome taskmaster, spoils all your fun and makes you feel guilty for not doing what you know you should do. Oh, my friend, all I can do is plead with you to see the foolishness of your own heart and by the power of the the Holy Spirit through the means of the word of God to summon you to see and savor the glory and the beauty and the worth and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who would stumble upon a priceless treasure on a treasure chest hidden in a field right there in front of you and do nothing to lay hold of it? Friend, lay hold of Christ this morning. Abandon any hope of achieving righteousness by your own merit and cast all your hope on the righteousness of the one who lived, died, and rose again on your behalf. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that good news remains available to you to this very day. Run to Christ. But others of you, you answer, yes, I do know him. I do go on counting all things as lost for the sake of knowing him. By God's grace, I do treasure him more than all that life can offer and all that death can take. I don't do it perfectly. I'm ashamed at how imperfectly I do it given all the truth that I know from God's word about him. And like Paul, I say, not that I have already obtained it, already have become perfect, but oh, I press on. And by the grace of God, yes, he is all my hope for righteousness. And yes, he is my delight and my reward. For those of you, brothers and sisters who Can answer that way, I just want to entreat you to feast the appetites of your soul on that glorious Savior. Rearrange everything in your life so that you might be ever deepening your personal, intimate knowledge of this dear Jesus. Read His Word, pray to Him, gather with His church, fellowship with His people, preach the gospel to unbelievers, endure suffering with Him, and let all the righteousness and the grace, and the holiness, and the glory, and the pleasure, and the beauty, and the delight. Let all that he is for you keep you from ever seeking your righteousness or your satisfaction and treasure anywhere else. Seek it only in him. Pray with me. Father, that is our prayer. We know our frame. We are mindful that we are but dust. We know how far short we fall of these lofty claims. But by the grace of God, we can say truly that we do count all things as lost. We do say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We don't live like we should in light of that. But there's something in the bottom of our hearts that calls out and says, yes, that's what I want. I want him. And so, no, we've not already obtained it, Father. Father. And we're ashamed that we haven't. We're ashamed of how far we've fallen short, given all that we know, especially in this place, all the blessings of this glorious ministry for the last five decades, and yet here we are, fallen short. What good dwells? I know that nothing good dwells in me. What I want to do, I don't want, I don't do. What I do, I don't want to do. Who will rescue me? Who will free me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord because now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we just ask you for your spirit to come and to conform the character of our hearts, our souls, to living in a way that matches this glorious set of truths, that we would have a faith that continues, that we would continue to count all things as lost, no matter what they are, that we would abandon hope in our righteousness, that we would treasure you above all things, even all idols, substitute false pleasures that can never satisfy, and that we would come to the water and drink freely of the river of life, and that we would go on ever deepening our knowledge of you. We struggle with our devotional time. We struggle with our prayer time. We, wish, we all wish we read and prayed more. I don't know that there's any of us that says, my life, my devotional life is perfect right now. And we just fall on our face and ask you to change that in us, to make us faithful before you. Some call him the pearl of great price and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice and cling to the world and its toys. Like Judas, the Savior, they kiss, and while they salute him, betray. Oh, what will profession like this avail in that terrible day? And before that, Standard Father, all we can do is fling ourselves at your mercy and at the cross, and just say that we're here to trust everything that we are to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is righteous. Who does have perfect devotional times, who did keep priorities perfectly, who did know how to live, for him to live was the Father, and to die was gain. And we trust in his provision, in his perfect obedience, to merit our acceptance with you. We just ask that for his sake, because you have so graciously clothed us with his righteousness, that you would be pleased with us. Oh, for your namesake, for Christ's namesake, be pleased with your people. Get what you are worthy of in your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.